0: Welcome to the European Football Show and the World Football Index. Um, as ever, I'm your host Alan Feely, coming to you from Cork in the Re- Republic of Ireland. And I'm joined today by four fantastic guests from different parts of Europe. Uh, first up, a debutant to the show, uh, Damagoy Kostanschak. Uh, how are you, Damagoy?
1: I'm pretty good, thank you, Alan. Nice to be here.
0: Absolutely, it's great to have you here, Damagoy. Uh, you're in Croatia right now, right? But you live in Scotland.
1: Exactly, I'm in Croatia, back on holidays, visiting my
0: family. But yes, I'm, I'm, at the moment, I'm living in Scotland, let's just put it that way. Fantastic, fantastic. Uh, John Sullivan out in the west of Ireland, in Galway. John, how's it going?
2: Yeah, never better. Full of the joys of what felt like actual football returning in England after a really, really good character Premier League football uh, last weekend. And I'm really excited to talk about it.
0: Lots of Barclays, lots of Barclays. Uh, Jasmine Barber is in Hessen in Germany. Jasmine, how's it going?
3: I think it's too much Barclays for me already. (laughs) Um, Yeah, lots of great football and despite having 31 degrees over the weekend, we've crashed back to 19 and rain, so enjoying the coolness.
0: (laughs) And finally, Jonathan Fidugba is in London in the United Kingdom. Jonathan, how's it going?
4: Hi guys, nice to be on the show. I don't really have too much to say about anything right now, but I'm looking forward to spending an hour with you to talk through everything. So, yeah.
0: Fantastic. There's definitely a shortage of things to discuss. Uh, Before we get into the actual action on the pitch this week, just to touch on Gerd Müller, the legendary German striker who passed away this week at the age of 75. Jasmine, what's the reaction been like in Germany? And what does Gerd Müller mean as a person to not just German football, but European football and world football as a whole?
3: I mean, it's for such an excited weekend to get back to the Bundesliga. It was quite a humbling moment when the news broke. And the reaction of German football as a whole has been pretty devastated. I mean, he's been in the news so much because of last season and Lewandowski obviously breaking his 40-goal record in the league. Um, and to then find out that he passed away on the first weekend was really really sobering um a lot of outpouring of grief from all over germany and the football clubs especially the the pinnacle he was for bayern back in before modern in the modern football times that we've got right now and to just go through some of his international stats um richard jolly at rich jolly on twitter posted a lovely little tidbit on his stats in um, the international stage, Stage. he was the last player to score 10-plus goals in one World Cup, scored 30-plus club goals in 12 consecutive seasons, top scorer in the Champions League in four seasons, in the Bundesliga seven, only player since 1962 to score 50 international goals at more than one, point in, one per game. Um, he was fantastic. He was... Um, everything to Bayern and German football at one stage of, of history. And I don't think Germany, German football will forget that anytime soon.
0: Absolutely. It's always sad when uh, the legends of the game go, but that's the circle of life, I guess, um, and things move on. But rest in peace to Gerd from everybody at War Football Index, for sure. Um, but coming back to the football, uh, Wednesday night saw Chelsea play Villarreal in the Europa, sorry, in the Europa League final, in the European Super Cup. Uh, final in Belfast in Windsor Park Uh, the game finished one all after extra time and Chelsea won on penalties Uh, a really thrilling game Uh, what do you make of it Jonathan and what do you make of Chelsea as an entity this season I mean, a lot of people are tipping them as being possible favourites to the Premier League Uh, they followed up that victory on Wednesday night with a 3-0 defeat of Patrick Vieira's Crystal Palace at the weekends, they look quite ominous under Thomas Tuchel don't they and I mean the arrival of Romelu Lukaku, who I know is somebody who you rate really highly, is just adding, you know, fuel to the fire. Like they look terrifying and almost impossible to stop in many ways, don't they?
4: Yeah, they were really good. Um, clearly, of course, uh, it was quite a tight game in the end. Um, preseason, you know, everyone's still getting the cobwebs out, but the fact that um, you know it was it was almost similar to the Europa League final in the sense that it went to penalties and and um, Thomas Tuchel's proactive decision to sort of swap his keepers and his very rational sort of analysis of it afterwards in terms of, you know, the, the statistics that they have on both keepers, their save percentages and, and all that kind of thing. For me, that was like the key, I suppose, takeaway from that game, um, maybe alongside Trevor Chalobah, But uh, yeah, it just showed really why Tuchel's probably one of the top three, four, five coaches in, in world football, um, just in, in terms of the level of detail he goes into. And, and that was that was the difference at the end of the day. If you look at the Europa League final, of course, um, David De Gea not making one single save, and and the save percentages between uh, Dean Henderson and of course and De Gea, so some will have questioned, you know, the, the difference between the two managers in that sense, and and Tuchel's pro- proactive nature um, just shows what a top manager he is really. And I, and I think that kind of just furthered my opinion that Chelsea will be, if not title favourites, then certainly strong contenders. I think they're going to be really, really strong this season. And of course, if you, as you just said, the signing of Lukaku just makes it kind of you know just this is just an extra string to their bow if they still get if they're still in for Jules Kounde as, as is rumored then that's just a ridiculous squad to be honest so yeah they 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 got the job done i don't think they were amazing in that game they had spells where they dominated Villarreal had spells where they looked uh, quite good themselves um but i think the key takeaway was just how you know tuchel his ability to sort of um interpret and, and analyse games and, and and his rational, clear thinking in, in moments of sort of high intensity or high stress just shows why he's such a, a brilliant manager. So, yeah, I think they're, they're going to have a, a very good season this year. And, and Lukaku, I've talked about him a lot, I think, in this podcast in the, in the past. I think he's one of the best strikers in the world for a lot of money, but uh, he's probably at his peak now. And, you know, let's see how he deals with kind of because there is a sense of there is some sort of doubt still for some reason in the Premier League about him. Um, I believe he's in the top ten all-time goal scorers in Premier League history. Might have to, that might be that might have changed since he left. But I remember when he when he left the Premier League, he he was he was around that level. Um, so yeah, he's got a chance to add to his tally, and 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 it'll be interesting to see how he he deals with kind of that 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 sense of maybe not uh, having convinced everybody in English football about him for, for whatever reason. Um, he doesn't need to convince me though. I think he, I think he's exceptional.
0: I think he's also one of the fastest players to hit 100 goals, 100 League goals. I think Jasmine mentioned that last week. Um, but yeah, I think he's the kind of player who th- thrives off that kind of expectation, that kind of doubt, if that makes sense. And I think that uh, that's why he's leaving Inter and coming back to Chelsea. He feels he's unfinished business. at Stamford Bridge obviously didn't work out for him in his first stint at the club. Uh, just going back to what you mentioned there about the goalkeeper switch. Uh, John, what do you make of that? Um, I mean, obviously... Uh, Thomas Tuchel took off, Edward Mendy, Berlain Kepa, Ariza Balaga, who famously refused to come off uh, in different circumstances for Maurizio Sarri in the Caragoa Cup, Cup final a couple of seasons back. Um, but when he came off, uh, Edward Mendy, that is, it was quite clearly pre-planned. You know, he's very encouraging of Kepa. Kepa came on, was quite visibly charged up, really, really up for it. And uh, obviously was the hero of the penalty shootout. He made two saves and uh, you could sense a kind of vindication afterwards, right? The way he celebrated a lot of emotion, kind of an outpouring of uh, emotion, you could say, coming from the the Basque.
2: Yeah, I think firstly, it shows that Tuchel has the courage of his convictions. And why wouldn't he? The reigning European champion as a manager, he's he's had a really kind of hot streak since he joined Chelsea. More or less, everything has gone his way by the FA Cup final, and he's won a lot of plaudits deservedly. So that just shows how much confidence he has in himself right now, because it's not something you see very often. I think the first time I ever saw it was Van Hal doing it in the 2014 World Cup in a penalty shootout with Tim Krul. But uh, it, it shows a manager who has supreme confidence in his own ability. ability. I think for Kepa, it's maybe a nice bit of redemption. I don't think there's any danger he would dislodge Mendy as Chelsea's first goalkeeper. But since Kepa has moved to Chelsea, he's kind of been a figure of ridicule. Uh, I think he's been really hindered by the fact that he was the world's most expensive goalkeeper that's a really kind of heavy heavy thing to carry around your shoulders and I think it's probably affected him so for him to come off the bench against uh, against his countrymen and to perform that way and save two penalties and help Chelsea win a trophy I mean yes it, it is kind of a pre-season but UEFA considered the European Super Cup a major European trophy so to play a role in something like that is, is really nice for him I think
0: Absolutely. And just as a final word on Chelsea, Jasmine, like we spoke last, week, how was strong there and their potential to win the title of the season. You know, given the two games they played this week, uh, how do you feel about it now?
3: Um, I still think their title is, oh, I'm going to put out a bold claim here and I know I'm going to get, um, I'm on a horrible run of saying things and it going completely wrong afterwards. But I still think, From the start, it was Chelsea's title to lose this um, season. I still think that. I think that buying Lukaku is a wonderful piece of business for them and someone that they absolutely need. Um, And that's about it. They're not really changing their formation or structure from last season either. So we'll see a little bit more... um, stability there and a little bit more of continuity so we'll really see them shine and that's what I believe and I think everyone else has just voiced what I feel about Tuchel already so yeah I still think it best to lose this season.
0: Is continuity a phrase they use in German a lot as well in German football because it's a phrase they use in Spanish continually but I never really hear it that much in English football.
3: It could be something that I've picked up. There's loads of phrases that they've used in German, but I don't think continuity is one. They like to use um, like everything is uh, <laughs> easy and logical. So possibly <laughs> I've not picked up on the German word but that yet. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Very good. Um, I guess from a Villarreal perspective, uh, Damagoy, like, you know, La Liga Twitter can be quite in the mode of place in many, many ways. And I think pre-game there was almost a lot riding on it people wanted Villarreal to kind of strike a blow in the honor of Spanish football you could say against a much fancy Chelsea team Um, obviously they gave very good account of themselves you know went right the distance like they did against United except this time Panthers didn't work in their favor Um, what do you think of this game and What do you think it means for Spanish football but also for Villarreal and how strong do you think Villarreal could be going into a season where they're competing, well they're actually playing this evening just an hour after we finish recording here against Granada and they're opening La Liga game but they're also competing of course in the Champions League having won the Europa League against Manchester United last season.
1: Well I think that despite the loss against Chelsea I think they've made Spain proud already because uh, just that the last campaign was excellent just winning the that's that's a massive achievement for them uh, the first title of theirs in, in Europe and and I think fe- I feel like that game in particular just to, just to take chelsea to extra time and then take, take them to the penalties as well regardless of the result you know they lost but so what I mean of course we would have loved them to win but at the same time this is a, this is a huge step for them and looking ahead to the next season I feel like realistically a top 6 finish is a must uh but Challenging for top four would be like, I think they, they should aim for that. Whether they can do that or not it remains to be seen. They have the squad to do so. They have the quality and have the they have the coach to do so as well. So I think I think they should they should be striving towards that. Um, let's see. I mean, a lot could happen. So I mean, tonight I expect a win. Nothing nothing less than that. Um, and uh, that, that's pretty much it, I guess. I, I think that at this point we're we're kind of. Looking at them as a top top team in Spain, maybe not a team that they should fight for titles like for La Liga, but uh, a team that should definitely be aiming to finish uh, in the top half and, and in top six at the very least, in my opinion.
0: Absolutely, um, Real Betis and Real Sociedad, in that order, finished above them last season in La Liga between them and. At Sevilla, there was obviously a 15-point gap between Sevilla and, and La Real. Who do you think of those two would drop out to, for Villarreal to get into that top six?
1: Well, realistically, it's Betis, probably. Um, <laughs> well, I'm saying this now, but Real Sociedad kind of looked very shaky in the first game, but it's only one game, so we, we can't tell. Um, I would say that it's Betis, probably. Uh, but realistically, I see Villarreal just above both of those teams, to be honest. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I think so. I think so. And don't forget, two seasons ago, they finished fifth. Um, so quite a fall domestically last season, although I think that the owners were very much prioritising winning a trophy, their first title of their history. And of course, they succeeded in the Europa League. So it's going to be interesting to see how they do this season, how they compete with the likes of Sevilla, um, who we'll talk about more later. But just coming back to, to England and the Chelsea's opponents in the second game, we mentioned their Crystal Palace. It was their first game under P- Patrick Vieira. Um, what do you make of Crystal Palace this season, Jonathan? Um, it's obviously a summer of serious change for them. New coach, a lot of new players. How do you think they'll fare this season?
4: Yeah, I think it's probably time for my first uh, hot take of the season. I, I think um, Palace is going to go down. That's my my prediction. Um, I'm going to go straight in for the jugular right now. Why not? <laughs> um, yeah, like, I think part of the reason I'm I'm making this hot take is because I've, I've, I've seen quite a lot of um, positivity around Palace, which you know I'm all for positivity. I'm not trying to rain on anyone's parade or anything, but I really feel like there's a massive overvaluing of like how how their summer has gone compared to uh, the, the the general feeling around the club. There's, uh, I think I read on the Athletic they had like a fan confidence kind of poll of like who which fans are most confident about their their team going into the season, and I think Palace were one of the top teams in terms of fan fan confidence. But I, I really approach it from the completely opposite way. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong, you know, probably in 10 months you can replay this and I'll look like a complete fool as they as they get into the Europa League or whatever. But, but um, yeah, I, I really don't feel like Palace, uh, I really feel like Palace are going to have a season of struggle. I feel like Roy Hodgson's um, been hugely overrest- uh, underestimated in terms of the job he did there personally. Um, I think that although the football wasn't amazing at times and he, he's quite a sort of, um, you know, some may consider him to be sort of like a slightly dour manager. I think he, 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 he was sort of almost a banker in terms of staying up. He knew how to get the job done with limited resources. And if you look at Palace's transfer business, I, I really feel like they've gone, gone backwards almost. So I know there's a lot of excitement about some of the young players, but I, I think if you look at their squad, I, I see just huge weaknesses. And I think there's too many players that kind of are in their first season in at this sort of level where you can't, I don't think you can expect huge amounts from them. And then obviously you look at Patrick Vieira and I think his time at Nice was questionable. Um, Did a decent job at at New York, but, you know, still at times was sort of showed a bit of stubbornness tactically and things like that. So I I really feel like the Hodgson to Vieira is a huge downgrade. And so I I think that, um, I think they're going to struggle this season and it didn't surprise me to see Chelsea just dispatched them quite comfortably. Um, I know Vieira said afterwards that they, they need signing. So, you know, I may well change my opinion in, in 15 days if they've managed to get maybe the deals through that they need. But if you look at their squad at the moment, I, f- I think it's really, really threadbare. And um, yeah, that's hot take number one. I, th- I think Palace are going to have a struggle this season. Um, and I, I don't really share the confidence that seems to be kind of um, pervading around South London at the moment.
0: I guess a lot of it is almost an existential question, isn't it? Because you have, uh, you know, as you said, under Hodgson, their complete stability for many years, Um, unspectacular stability, you could say, but then I guess, you know, they come to a point where what do they want? They want to try and press on in a way they weren't maybe going to do under and That's what they brought in the big name in Vieira and a host of new signings. So I guess it's kind of a it, it, it's a a kind of a dangerous thing to do because it could go either way. And I guess we'll see over the course of the season how it does go. It's going to be interesting for sure. Um, but across from London, uh, the night before, Brentford beat Arsenal 2-0. Jasmine, not the ideal start to the season for for the Gunners, right?
3: No, not at all. And um, I think it was one of those things that get touted in the Premier League that no one could write this except every other Arsenal fan and anyone who's been paying attention to the Premier League since its inception. Um, but yeah, it was a terrible night for Arsenal. There was no real beating around the bush Um if you look at XG, if you look at the stats, you could say, oh, but Arsenal actually did create something in the second half. They weren't that bad. But it's the manner in which they create these chances, often too late and often too slow. Um, there's, It's the same problems that we've seen throughout the last probably three seasons of disjointed defence to attack. And um, Brentford just did an incredible job um, of overtaking Arsenal's weaknesses. Um, Chambers was a fault for the first goal, which was an absolute stunner from the right-hand side from uh, Canos, and Arsenal have forever had this problem ingrained into them where they've allowed um, attackers to get onto their stronger foot to score. It's like the... um, the traumatic experience against Bayern in the Champions League and leaving Aaron Robin all alone to go on his on his stronger foot has never left this side. Um, but you know, it's it's just stuff like why was Martinelli playing on the left wing when he's so he's built to be a centre forward and he's never really had that chance. If you look at some of his goals, especially that miraculous one against Chelsea when they were down to 10 men and they equalised, he came from a counter-attack bullet down through the middle. Um, and it's just these mistakes and these playing strikers on the left wing for some reason that it it just didn't work. And then obviously there was... um We played Florian Balogun, who it didn't really work on the night. He's young; that will happen. But to not really replace him with another striker, and as my fiance said, play a false everything that night. You're not. You're not going to win. Win about against teams that have just been promoted and have nothing to lose. Brentford were amazing. They completely shut Arsenal out in even in those well-worked attacks that they did have. And um, yeah, it's just another poor showing from Arsenal. And I don't know if it will get better if that's the first showing we have.
0: But what's the feeling around Arsenal at the moment? I mean, it's Miklatera is into, you know, not quite his third season because he came in uh, midway through his first, but his, you know he's almost a full season and a half into the job now obviously a COVID interrupted season and a half, but a season and a half, nonetheless, like it's not Unai Emery's team anymore. Um, like what do you think your prospects are this season and how likely do you think it is that Arteta will be in charge of Arsenal in a year's time?
3: I think there was some unlucky bits to it. I mean, on a night where both Lacazette and Aubameyang were ill, um, You can only work with what you have. I was not really impressed by Ben White. And it just feels like the transfer business throughout the last few seasons has just been wrong. Um, Arsenal kind of bragged about um, getting Ben White and his agent said, oh, they showed us all this analysis of the players that they'll buy and stuff. And he just, I've been hoping Arsenal buy smartly from the league rather than, Pay a lot of money from outside of the league and find out they don't really fit in terms of like Pepe is one, um, and and Party another, and it just seems to be going that way. And with those kind of with that kind of happening at the squad right now, I don't think our prospects will be any better than last year. Um, it's I'm always maybe I'm being a little bit too harsh. Maybe we'll go on a good run. bit like last year but you know if you see the kind of transfer deals Leicester's making um there is no reason why you shouldn't be investing smartly and why you shouldn't be going for top six and higher but something about what happened and some of the business that we've done at the moment just doesn't sit well with me and I don't think it'll be higher than that
0: hmm certainly going to be an interesting season uh, for Arsenal uh, this year. I'm glad to have that as well. Of course, when he came in in the winter of 2020-2019, he wasn't the only managerial change around that time. Carlo Ancelotti joined Everton. um, And, of course, he's left now for Real Madrid. But... uh, Rafa Benitez is coming instead, and Everton uh, won 3-1 against Adampton on Saturday afternoon. Uh, the first come-from-behind victory since December 2015, quite remarkably. Um, and it's a very good game for Rafa Benitez to begin with. Uh, obviously, a lot of pressure from the outside, from a lot of Everton fans who aren't happy with appointing a former Liverpool man, especially somebody so closely with Liverpool, associated with Liverpool, sorry. Um, so to get off the board in that fashion was uh, was very important, John. I know you're somebody who you know is obviously grew up with Rafa's Liverpool teams and follows, has followed his progress very closely since then. We've been in dialogue quite frequently ever since he took the Everton job about what he might do with the team and and how he might do at Goodison Park. Um, what's your thoughts on the appointment, first of all, but also kind of you know the the first showing of Rafa's Everton and how does that make you feel?
2: So obviously, emotionally, for an Everton fan's perspective, it's a bit of a controversial uh, appointment because of his association with Liverpool, because of maybe people considering him having called Everton a smaller club uh, during his tenure as Liverpool manager. This is something he kind of says that was taken out of context. So I can understand maybe there was reticence in certain quarters. But from, you know, from a rational and objective perspective, I think, he, I think he's always done a good job, more or less anywhere he's been, with the exception of Real Madrid. And as many people know, that's an extremely, extremely hard job where a lot of times it's more about managing egos than it is about coaching. Uh, Inter Milan mightn't have gone too well for him, but he was in a hiding to nothing and hurting a treble winning squad that was actually just very, very old and had probably overachieved under Jose Mourinho. So apart from that, I think he's done brilliantly everywhere. He twice broke the duopoly in Spain. He done a brilliant job at Liverpool. and missed uh, a lot of ownership issues. He won the Italian Cup with Napoli. So I think he he was a very good hiring uh, hire. And their their first performance was excellent. Uh, the goal they conceded was you know more of a individual error from Michael Kane. Something that you, you said that was born out of him playing as the left side, the centre half when he's more used to playing on the right side. Uh and he altered that and. Lo and behold, Everton scored three goals and they could have even scored more. And I know that, you know, it is maybe been like a bit of banter between Liverpool fans and Everton fans about some of the players that Everton signed this summer, uh, particularly Damari Gray and Andres Townsend. But I think they gave Everton in this game an element that they were missing last season and that they provided pace. And, you know, they made space infield for other players such as uh, Calvert-Lewin and for Abdoulaye DeCore. So uh, from that perspective, I think it was an ideal kind of a first outing for him. In um, having said that, I think Southampton will be among one of the teams that will be fighting for their lives. They've lost uh, Danny Ings, who was their inspirational top scorer. And uh, I don't think I would have too much faith in any of the other uh, acquisitions they've made. Armstrong is still an unproven entity at Premier League level. So, um, yeah, while Southampton were poor, you have to give Everton credit. Like you said, it was a first come-behind win in six years, which is... Hard to believe, and uh, just given the pressure that Benitez is under, I think he needed that.
0: So, yeah, I think that you know, a Raf Benitez everything team is going to bring a degree of functionality and a degree of competence that um, Carlo Ancelotti was sorely lacking, to be perfectly honest with you. And I'm intrigued to he gets on. I was never as negative about it as many were. Um, when he was appointed i think that it could be an interesting choice and i think that Everton don't have much to lose given they finished 10th and 12th in the last two seasons um, on the side i think that richardison could have an absolutely massive season um he had a big big 12 months after a full Everton season he went to the Copa america or brazil uh, where they got to the final of course to lose to argentina and then of course he went all the way to the final olympic games too being in spain and he was the key man. Uh, Neymar wasn't in that squad, so he was very much the senior player alongside Danny Alves in terms of guiding the younger players like Matthias Cunha and Reiner Jesus and uh, and the like of that. So I think that he'll come back. You know, he's come back, hit the ground running, scored a goal, and assisted as well. Um he's full of enthusiasm, full of beans, and I'm intrigued so he gets on uh, this season. But but speaking of Ancelotti, it was his first game as Real Madrid coach in his second spell, of course, this weekend. Uh, they went and beat Alaves 4-1 um, and Mendy Um A very competent performance from them, very strong. Uh, it's a new look. Madrid, David Alaba starting in the centre of defence. Sergio Ramos has, of course, gone to PSG. Rafa Veran has gone to Manchester United. Um, the front three was quite uh, glitzy, you could say. Karim Benzema, uh, Gareth Bale and Eden Hazard. And what do you make of them, Domagoj? Uh, obviously, Alaves away isn't, you know, the toughest of tasks in La Liga. They actually won the exact same fixture four-one as well last season. But they do look strong, don't they? Look a bit leaner than they were last year, maybe, and they look like they have a bit more left in the tank than Manny would have suggested. You could say.
1: Yes, I would agree with that. I mean, it was a game they just had to win. There was no excuse. You know, you have to go and you have to win that game. Uh, Ancelotti is a. Uh, I just see him as a very transitional type of coach. I mean, not in the style of play, but rather you know, Madrid gonna get him, and if he fails, just just no harm done, just just kick him out, and then get something, someone new. Uh, he's gonna very much adapt to the team that he's got. He he's sort of a tactical chameleon, if you will. He just kind of readjusted it to the the team that he has in front of him, um, and Real Madrid. There will be a lot of expectation of attacking dominance, you know, constantly being the the, the team up front, the team that's on the front foot, uh, and they've had to be honest. To be perfectly honest, uh, they've looked you know like the dominating side, and they've been fairly co- uh, comfortable in that game. Um, but you know, losing Ramos and losing Varane, it's tough because after you know, ever since Cristiano Ronaldo left the club, Zidane has worked really hard to make this Real Madrid team into a Different type of thing, team, because they were not exactly the most attacking um, team anymore. They were more like a defensive juggernaut, if you will. And then you lose two such influential figures in the, in the defensive line, then you're bound to struggle a bit. So I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing Real Madrid kind of face the teams that are going to pose a more threat, you know, for the more, more danger. Um, but so far, so good, I would say. Uh, we'll see if even Hazard can stay healthy. And we'll see if uh, they can kind of support Benzema because Benzema has been the only focal point in attack. He hasn't been getting much support from from either of the uh, other players. They have Rodrigo, who's a superb young talent. They have Anisio Junior, who's also a great talent as well. So I would say that there is a lot of potential for, for this Real Madrid side to be, to be a great side. But at the same time, it will depend on a lot of factors.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and what are your thoughts on just in terms of, you know, the kind of identity crisis you could say that Madrid are having and La Liga is having as a whole? I mean, who do you think is the biggest star in La Liga these days? Is it, is, it, is it Karim Benzema, do you think? And do you think he's underrated given how good he's been for, you know, over a decade? Well, to a certain
1: extent, yes. Underrated for sure, because people are only now realizing that, well, this guy is actually pretty good. Um, but would I put him as the, as the face of La Liga potentially, but I feel like this is kind of uh, dawn of new era at La Liga, it, it feels like if if we're going to have a new face after Leo Messi's departure, it has to be a young player um, and I feel like the likes of Joao Felix are, have to, they will have to step up and, and, and show up and, and be the, the face of La Liga. Benzema definitely among the veterans among the players who are can have this pedigree already. He's definitely among those players, you know, the top players. I would say Jan Oblak could be one of the names that I would I would probably mention as as, as the, uh, the the biggest names left in La Liga. And so is Antoine Griezmann to be fair to him as well. Uh, now it remains to be seen. I don't think you can just say outright just now who's the new face of La Liga, but I, I would say that he has to be a young player or at least I would like it to be a young player because that would kinda of signal the whole new transition to to a, to a different different style because if you look at Spain and how they perform uh, in the youth levels and um, then on the, on the international stage as well, it's kind of uh, the whole theme, if you will, of, of Spain is is trusting the youth, and I think the La Liga should follow suit and and put their trust in in the youth young players, and
0: we'll see where where it goes. Absolutely. There's no shortage of young talent in La Liga. To be fair, a lot of maybe weren't household names, but anyone who watches La Liga closely will know how, just how good they are and how good they can be with the right guidance and, and nourishment. Um, but going to Germany for a second, Jasmine, I guess you could say Bayern Munich are in a similar situation to Real Madrid in many ways. New coach, um, not really a new squad. I mean, obviously they've lost, you know, David Alaba to Real Madrid as you mentioned earlier. You know, Leon Goretzka's into the final year of his contract. He's been linked with a move elsewhere. Um, there's not really the same kind of sense of imperiousness, if that, if that's even a word, about Bayern this season. They opened the campaign with a one-one draw with your team, Borussia Um What do you make of this game? What do you make of Bayern's kind of perspectives heading into the new season? And also, how do you think Borussia Mönchengladbach are going to bounce back after last season's uh, disappointment? Uh,
3: about Bayern Munich, I I say the same thing every season. It, it seems to be a troubling season for them nearly every season because they're not walking the league. And by the end of the 36 games, they've won again. No matter um, how far away they are, how close it is to the final day, they always seem to hip to the front and honestly guns ahead like I don't think this year will be much different um there has been a lot of changes in across the whole league we saw so many chaotic managerial changes sackings um, and you know uh, clubs uh, managers deciding to go to rival clubs and um as you said there's team stability in this, there's obviously talk about Leon Goretzka's contract um, that was apparent in chaos over Kimmich, it looks like Kimmich's going to be signing and then you think okay, the the kind of um, chaotic feeling is going to go away. Um, a, good po- a good showing of this was against Borussia Mönchengladbach, the season opener. Um, Bayern have never had a great record away at München Gladbach. And uh it's the same this season. It's the, the last six away trips there, they've only won two. Uh one draw three losses, I think, or maybe the other way around. Don't quote me on that. Um I am having a little look at my notes. One draw three losses, it was that. Um, so it, it, it with everything that's been riding on Bayern recently I think, especially the players still to come back. There's still quite a few missing. They've only really trained 45 minutes as a in the preseason altogether as the closest to starting lineup, and the three 0 loss against Napoli. Um, so there's still a lot to come from this Bayern team, um, and again with everyone else's changes and the kind of quality that Bayern Munich have, and in their new coach. Even if he doesn't do that well, they are sticking to him. He is in there for this transition period. They, they've given him a five-year contract for a reason. It's a long contract and it's it's a statement. Um, but that game against Borussia Gladbach is, as I said, it, I thought it was going to be cagey. It was nothing of the sort. Um, the first goal of Gladbach's was... Um, an error from Stanisic, which I was surprised he was playing at right back, um, and he kind of proved it with that error to help um, Stindl kind of break through their defence. Their defence still looks wobbly, but again, you had um, Davy, Sula, Upamakano, who's still fitting in, and Stanisic. Um, So the first 15, 20 minutes was quite a bit of all of Gladbach, and this Gladbach team are look completely revitalized from Marco Rosa's errors from last season, which really took them down with no Europe. I think the only benefit is is because they have no Europe, they should be dark horses. And the way that they played against Bionet times can show why they will be fighting for the top four. Um, they look like they have solutions in possession for once, which was really nice, really nice to see them work around the ball. Um, and this is, With them still rejigging their team, Zakaria is rumoured to go to Syria A, which means they lose a little bit of that midfield grit. Um, They're putting uh, Turam. He played centre-forward for the last 20, 30 minutes, and he looked like a completely different player. He's been stuck out on that left wing for so long, a bit like the Martinelli saga in Arsenal, just but with more games. And it's really nice to see this. Um, but Bayern were still themselves. They had so many shots on targets, one 3 by like um, maybe 3 2. They let on a, a lot of shots as well. But Jan Sommer for Glabach pulled out a stunner once again to defy Bayern Munich from winning.
0: Absolutely. I guess, you know, given the nature of last season, the way things kind of capitulated for them, after it became clear that Mark Roy is going to go and join Borussia Dortmund, who we'll discuss a bit more later, you know, it makes sense that after a summer break, they can kind of reemerge, revitalized. Um, So it's going to be interesting to see how they do this season for sure. I'm sure they'll improve on last season's seventh-place finish, right? Um, But yeah, it's going to be interesting for sure. You mentioned games that, you know, weren't cagey by any means. One was certainly... Uh, Manchester United versus Leeds United. Man United won five 0 of course. Sorry, five one, of course. Very, very open game, uh, a thrilling game in many ways, and uh, quite an ominous game for the rest of the division. I think that United are emerging as you know genuine title contenders alongside uh, Chelsea and Manchester City and Liverpool to a certain extent. Uh, Paul Pogba, Jonathan, was a phenomenon in this game. I know he's someone that we've discussed many times before in this podcast, but he genuinely looked to be the Paul Pogba who plays for France as opposed to Manchester United in many ways, even though he was playing on that left wing. I mean, the quality of assists were something else, weren't they?
4: Yeah, I think he, he was he was very, very good. Um I don't necessarily share the, the view that kind of the Paul Pogba that plays for France and the Paul Pogba for the place for Manchester United are different. I think they're actually quite similar. It's just that the Paul Pogba that plays for France doesn't have the English media around him. Um, it has the French media who are a little bit more appreciative. Uh, and I think that's really the, 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 the bottom line of it. Um, didn't surprise me to see Sky had to have a conversation about Pogba, bringing him into the conversation when it was about Harry Kane missing training. And, and that really just sums up the, 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 that will always be the issue with Pogba in England. It's like, there's a, there's a problem with him and that's the bottom line of it. Until they maybe start to, uh, look more closely at the pundits that they hire and, and their agendas and their hidden sort of, um, issues in terms of the game. Yeah. Like Pogba was superb. Like the, the pass for the second goal for Greenwood was like just delicious. I mean, I mean, that is snooker levels, um, I likened it to Ricky Kaka. Like that is a Kaka-esque pass. I mean, it is just sensational. I mean, you could watch someone who texts me as a Watford fan was like just sending me like, gifts of it or whatever. And I was just saying I could watch this all day. And 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 it's true. It's just just an unbelievable pass. Um, he's a top player. I think I think my I've got hot take number two coming for you, uh, Alan. If you're ready for it, uh, I think uh, this is the year. This is this is the year of Greenwood. I think this is Mason Greenwood's year. I think he's going to hit 20 goals. Uh, minimum, if he can stay fit. I think he's blossoming and he will blossom into one of England's best forwards. I think he eventually will challenge Harry Kane for, the, for that England striker position. Um, don't know if it'll be this year, but I think I think we will start to see a decline of Harry Kane and, and, and a rise of disagree with him, in my opinion, if they can play him as a, as a nine. Um, he's that good. I think he's just gradually getting better and better and, and hopefully maybe this summer without the scrutiny on him and, you know, he's still very young. I think that can um, be something that you know is a, is a, is a storyline that can maybe come through the season. I think I think Greenwood's exceptional talent and the way he took his goal even was brilliant. In terms of the conversation about Manchester United maybe being title contenders, I'm still not still not entirely sure. I think I think the Leeds game was very similar to the Leeds game last season that ended six two in the sense of Leeds throw players forward and they leave so much space in, in, in transitions. They're so sort of free flowing um, that. United I think just tactically Solskjaer had the right solution against has has the right solution against Leeds at home kind of just very um you know just very kind of played balls in behind them and and he he kind of has figured out how to play them I think really I think I think tactically he got it spot on last season and I think he he pretty much matched it this season again um with so many passes in behind and that kind of thing that they couldn't really deal with it in that second half I think I think the one thing about United that is quite exciting maybe for fans is they have that ability to um sort of Blow teams away in, in in sort of a ten minute spell here and there. They, they have periods of games where they just turn it on and 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 it all everything the stars align and you know the the you know the everything comes together and it just it's like dream, dream stuff. Harlem Globetrotters to start start football for 10, 15 minutes, um, and then they have periods of games where they maybe lack lack, lack concentration and, and and they dip here and there. Early in the second half it started with the equalizer, and and, and I think balancing those two sort of sides to United is is where. We'll see if they're going to really challenge for for the title. You you don't have the luxury of doing that in in every game, of course. And you know I do have tend to have periods of games where they kind of um you know like last last season, for example, going behind so often um, in games that kind of thing, and then suddenly waking up. And, and I think that's a theme that they they really need to get rid of. Maybe the experience of um, Rafa Varane can can maybe change that. But it's can they overcome that? Is is the is the big question. So I still don't think necessarily they 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 sort of um title contenders they should be there's no there shouldn't be any excuses I don't think this season but I, I'm still not convinced if I was comparing them to say uh, Chelsea Liverpool or or, or City um, but of course if they can if they can get that switch and that ability to game manage and add to it their their ability to blow teams away in these 10-15 minute spells then then you can really start to consider them as a as, as strong contender's so it's gonna be interesting to see really. I don't think we can take away too much from that game personally, because of like I say, how they did that to Leeds last season. Um I think I think it's Southampton away this weekend and I think we'll learn a little bit more there in terms of how they manage that game and if they can blow if they start blowing teams away like that week in, week out, then then you you really may be able to sort of stand up and, and, and um take notice. Certainly. Uh, Jasmine, you want to come in there?
3: Yeah, um just to agree with Jonathan's thoughts about Man United being title challenges yeah I I agree I don't think it's the right time but a little bit about that game that actually kind of shocked me um the XG was for Man United was only 1.64 and Leeds I think was even worse it was like 0.5 um but the point is um I it kind of it's I think Man United have to take caution with that. Um, it's a superb outing. Pogba was amazing, but on another date, that wouldn't go their way. And there's also tactical fallacies with the game plan. I didn't, I I didn't like, but I'm trying to <laughs> withdraw myself in my anger because I think loads of people saw me during the game and me commentating on it. But um Pogba should not be playing that on the wing at all. And there is a cautious phase that Man United have to take caution with is Paul Pogba started just drifting about. He's great at that. And all of, I think, his three assists out of the four came from the centre. He is made to play in the centre. He's a great number eight. He shouldn't be put on the wing. And it wasn't a tactical Change because there was so much space from the area Pogba left that Leeds' only goal came from that right side and Shaw was left completely alone. Against better teams, you cannot do that. And if you're only posting around a 1.64 XG against a better team who will overrun your right side, you just need one quick player to run at you, that could be a very different story. Um, I love Pogba. Pogba and he did great and I think he needs to be in a more creative role but there needs to be a little bit more tactical now for someone to cover him in the ways like Man City do the kind um flexible rotating and I'm not seeing that enough from Man United to put them with the top of the table just yet.
4: Yeah I think um I pretty much share that that opinion to be honest with of, of Jasmine. Like, I think that I don't think you can draw that that many conclusions. I think I think United still need a, a central midfielder who can kind of um, be a bit a bit, a bit more dominant, domin- uh, a little bit more dominant than maybe Fred uh, and McTominay. I, I like I like both players, but I still think that that area of the field is is going to need maybe maybe one more signing, maybe strengthening to to really say yeah, they're title contenders. Um, I still think there's holes in the team in, in certain areas, in certain phases. There has been some encouraging signs. I think, you know, United have hired a set-piece coach um, this this season. And I think Solskjaer has shown an ability to maybe self-analyse maybe in that sense and, and, and maybe kind of look at the areas that he's maybe not as strong and, and maybe surround himself with people who, who are strong in that area. So that is something to maybe be encouraging. But at the same time, I still think that, yeah, I mean, Leeds, Leeds are Leeds. That's how Leeds are really. They're, they're that sort of team. And I, I just don't, I think, I think you could maybe draw more conclusions about Leeds from that game than, than Man United, but it's encouraging to see Bruno scoring hat-tricks, Pogba scoring, you know, registering four assists. I think, I think it was a great day just for the, the fans really. I I don't think it was like a long term, you can draw wide conclusions from this, but in terms of just starting the season, Varane being presented before the game, there was just a great feel good factor, having fans back, you know, the full stadium for the first time for so long, everything about, you can't, you can't come away from that game really as a United fan and be, be kind of too critical. If you are an analyst or something like that, then of course you, you look at it from a rational perspective. But I, I, you know, as a fan, you wouldn't go away from that game upset or anything. But it's just, it's you know, just be slightly cautious. I think in terms of the weeks to come. But yeah, I mean, all all all, all things considered, it was a as a brilliant day and and so much to be positive about. And like I say, this is uh green was here. I think.
0: Of course. Speaking of that midfielder, you think United need um, Would a certain eighteen-year-old playing for Ren of Angolan parentage, who looks to be on the way out of the club uh, this summer, be uh, of a Super profile?
4: Yeah, it's a good question. Actually, they—they he's—he's they, uh, he's not. There's there's quite a, a big story about Ren at the moment in terms of Camavinga. I, I'm pretty sure that's who you're mentioning uh, referring to. Um, he, he's not getting in the team at the moment. There's a real standoff between him and, and the club. Um, they played a 17-year-old in the game at the weekend against Bresta uh, called Leslie Uguchuku, a Nigerian. So I think we'll, we may be hearing more about him in, 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 um, in weeks and months to come. Uh, Ren have a brilliant academy, always have done, uh, and they, they, they're, not, they're not too shy about um, putting youngsters in. And the, the issue with um, Kamavinga is, you know, Ren fans aren't happy with the, the change of agents to, to Jonathan Barnett, and uh, I think it's Stella Um there's a feeling that kind of there's a lot of games going on behind the scenes to try and get him away. And try, obviously the, the, the reason he's joined them is to get a move for him. And I don't think it's gone down too well with fans. It's coincided with a, a dip in form. You know, his first two seasons were clearly his best. And, and I think last season he had a dip. Um, and I think this is this just speaks to the perils of, of being a young talent in a, in, a, in, a, in a world that is just very cutthroat business minded. It's all about sharks coming to get you and take you here and take you there and, and make money. And I think it's kind of um there's a potential cautionary tale around Kamavinga if if he's not too careful because I think uh he's still very young, don't get me wrong, but I think his career has slightly gone off track and it's really slightly more to do with um the distractions I think off the field and, and this where's his future gonna be. Um I think Ren's fans are quite critical about, about the people he's surrounding with him with uh, himself with at the moment. Uh they've looked at examples like Gareth Bale, for example, and and, and kind of um, you know, they're not you Know they're pointing to those kind of examples of how how your career can go necessarily when you take your eye off the ball, if that makes sense. So, um, I think Ren fans are, are quite disappointed. I think there's time ticking on his contract, so if a club is going to make a bid, it might be now. But honestly, I'd, I really don't think he's actually ready for a move to say the Premier League right now. I think he, I think he, I still think he needs another season, maybe in France. Um, if he was going to move, I would maybe say PSG, but I think they, you know, I think they've got their own uh financial issues to worry about at this moment in time. So I can't see that happening really. So he he may end up in a kind of a limbo situation where he might have to wait out the final year and, and, and maybe move next season, which then he'd lose a year of development. So it's it's one to watch this season definitely because um, you know, I think I think Ren have been quite strong minded and said, well, listen, if you're not focused, you're not playing and, and I think that's that's the right approach to have really as a club. Um you can't really be bullied by by the situation. So yeah, watch the space on that one. It's going to be one that's it's not it's not going too well. I think. Let's put it that way.
0: Talented eighteen-year-old midfielder taking perhaps bad advice behind the scenes. Dom, who am I talking about? <laughs> I
1: have no idea. <laughs> well, eighteen-year-old um, midfielder uh, in Spain, I presume. <laughs> uh, you're talking about Pedri, right?
0: No, 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 isn't taking maybe bad advice behind the scenes, making maybe qu- making questionable decisions on his uh, short-term future that could derail his long-term future. Uh, Elish Mariba.
1: Oh, Elish like Mariba. Oh, all right. Yeah, yeah, That That's definitely, definitely a, a, an interesting case. Um, as it seems right now, he is... Uh, it, it seems like he will, he's willing to wait out his contract and just not play at all for the next year and then leave the club as a free agent after that which to be honest at his age he needs to play if he doesn't play now um he, he just might stagnate he might he might lose too much in this one year one gap here. but it remains to be seen because barca are taking the right approach i think uh, just as jonathan said about camavinga you cannot really be bullied by a, by, a, by a player especially such a young player who seems to be well not his agents seem to be demanding quite a lot and uh the thing is Barsa could really use such a player uh, he is a unique pro profile that kind of adds that extra physicality and extra extra something that that the Barsa midfield doesn't have uh, at least not in, in the starting lineup so Kuman wants that kind of different profile and Elash Mariba offers that, that profile the thing is if he's really not gonna budge with the contract and it seems at this point that it's 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 done and dusted uh, both support and Kuman have been Pretty open about that uh, in in public, and, uh, talking to the media. It seems like he will be heading out of the club. But if someone doesn't come in right now and offers them, I think it's been twenty five million something like that that they want for him. If no one offers that, he's likely to just take a gap here, just sit on the on the in the stands, or uh, and, and then just leave as a free agent. That's that's at least that what I've been reading about him. Uh, which is a shame. It's a shame. He's a huge talent and one of those players that was kind of dubbed to 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 definitely make make a step up. And he's been playing for the for the A team as well. Even even uh, his performances have been really good. Even playing in the O Classical last year, he almost scored. Uh, what, what would have been an equalizing goal as well. Um, I think there's a lot of potential there, but it's just it's just the modern way we see football. Uh, it's just about the money and making the best move, which is not necessarily the best move uh, for the players' development, but just you know going where the money is and, and kind of uh, doing it that way, which is a shame, a really shame. I, I think I think he could have been something at Barca, and he, I think deep, deep down he still believes that Barca is a good club for him, it's just that he's been given all sorts of bad advice, as you've said, as you mentioned. Uh, So, (laughs) let's see where he goes from here. But I think this is, overall, I think that's that's a bad move for him, to be honest.
0: I agree, because I think the whole thing was that they're going to offer him a contract, because obviously they're in a poor financial situation. Um, But, a contract until he's 21 years old, he's 18 now, so a three-year deal, um, with the option, then a renegotiating, then at the end of that three-year deal. And like, he still hasn't done enough to warrant a massive move or a massive contract, especially not given the situation Barcelona are in. So I just think he's really overplaying his hand and being badly advised, like like Camavinga at a really crucial point in his developments, You know, so it, it's a shame. I mean, like even yesterday, Nico González came on. Like there is space in that midfield for young talents to flourish, and I think he's making a big error by not, you know, almost capitalising in how weak Barcelona are comparatively at the moment. But uh, speaking more about Barcelona, uh, Dom, I know you follow them very closely, but actually, first Jonathan must come in there.
4: Yeah, sorry, I hope, I hope you don't manage coming in on this uh, just very quickly. Yeah, I mean, I think there is a real, I think it's something really important in the modern game to, to look at and consider and, and really, it bears a lot of reflection. I mean, I don't know how many, I don't know how many young footballers are going to be listening to this podcast necessarily or listening to my words, but um, the point, you know, the point is that there are, there are like football is in an ecosystem where there is, it's so the, the, the thirst for the next big thing. I think for those of us working in media as well, who, who are involved in media side of it, it, it bears reflecting on our own role in it and how much we perpetuate it because you, it's something I've, I've certainly reflected on, you know, I, I've run a website for, for 10 years where one of our Primary focuses was young young talents and kind of like looking for the next big thing, and I, I certainly you know reflecting on it have have kind of looked back and 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 sometimes thought that the the pressure that kind of you place on these players and, and this this desire um, to and I I are quite mindful I mean I've always been quite mindful of it in terms of editorially but I think when you look around there's so many accounts looking for the next big thing and tweets going out a player has thirty good minutes and it's you know, a five minute Instagram reel or Twitter post of every single touch he's had. And, you know, is he the next Pele or is he the next Ronaldo kind of thing? And and I really think we have to be cautious about it because what ends up happening is that we perpetuate this, we perpetuate this ecosystem where players then are in a situation where they're they're grabbed by, you know, people, the money, the money men sort of swirl around and, and come to pick these players up quickly. And heads are turned so fast you know like you said with uh, as as has just said there with elect mariba and and, Kamavinga and and there's there's loads of players that you could name like that where i just think we kind of have to be a little bit mindful of how how much we, we perpetuate this this next big thing sometimes because players often need so much time to develop especially at such a high level in, in in elite football there are always going to be dips and and um what i think you know what makes messi so special is is uh, is that he's been able to perpetuate that level of performance for, you know, nearly 20 years and, and, and Ronaldo the same, but that, that is very, very rare. It's extremely rare to happen. And so it is, you do need a balancing act. And I I just, the reason I'm saying this is because obviously with, with Camavinga and and, and Moriba as well, it's almost like they, the hype has gone ahead of their actual career now. And, and they get, they're taking advice where it's like, you should be here. You should be there. They're a huge club still. I mean, Ren were in the Champions League last season. Um, think as a product of the Ren Academy. You know, Mareba's come through Barcelona, one of the biggest clubs in the world. And and yet there's this feeling that, oh, they should be moving on or, you know, they should be paid this or that. And I I feel like, you know, not only people in the media, but as well the people advising these players, like there has to be this kind of slowing down, I think, of of kind of the the, the burdens we put on what are ultimately teenagers. And, you know, just just to widen out, we've seen Simone Biles, we've seen um, players uh, in other sports, professionals, athletes, Facing that burden of mental health on them, and 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 sometimes I think that 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 does stem from this pressure that we seem to put on athletes so quickly, and um it just just bears reflecting on. I hope I hope I haven't taken too much time making this point, but yeah, it's just it's quite an interesting wider conversation on that. And um, I hope that Kamavinga, anyway, in, in that personal example can just maybe get back to focusing on on the field, and 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 because he has a great club in Ren who have been very supportive of him.
0: No, you're spot on, Jonathan. I think that you know if they if they focus on the pitch, then the good things will come off it. Once they're not being taken advantage of, and I don't think either player would be at the clubs that they're at right now. I think that they're both at clubs that know how to deal with younger players and out to to school younger players. So I think they will be best sort of getting back to just playing football as opposed to worrying about their career moves and stuff. But um, I think it's a salient point you make about Cristiano and Messi because they both have changed the game in terms of how we perceive young talents and what they can be because you know, before that maybe you had Kaka had a couple of great years, you know, Ronaldinho had a couple of great years as well, but never to the degree or to the level or to the kind of, you know, era-defining uh, element that... Cristiano and Lionel, uh, brought to their games. But but speaking of Lionel, uh, Domongoi obviously was the first competitive game of the post messi era at Barcelona last night. Um, Got off to a bang, beating Real Sociedad 4-2, racing into a three-goal lead, kind of maybe almost throwing it in the last 10 minutes when L'Areal came back with two goals. And then, of course, adding a fourth to let on down to Sergio Roberto. Um, Why would you make that game? It was obviously a weird one from an atmosphere point of view and stuff, given that it was the first post-Messi game. Um, But it was positive, I guess. But also there was warning signs there too.
1: Yeah, definitely. Definitely a weird game. I mean, obviously it still feels surreal to even think about Barcelona without Messi. And also believe he won't really hit home until we actually see him in a different shirt, on a different pitch and playing for a different team. And at that point, you'll simply realize, oh, wow, well, he really is gone. But look, I, I've said it before and I'll say it again. I'm one of those people, or at least in the camp, of those people who believe this is still a good thing long-term. Momentarily, of course, a huge loss, both you know, on morale and on the pitch. But it's one step back and two steps forward for Barca in my, in my book. It may be a big, big step back considering it's messy after all, but trust me, it's a necessary step back. They've come to the point where they've been they become so one dimensional that you may very well call them just FC Messi rather than FC Barcelona, and that's a huge problem. Messi was the system in so many ways and and, and football being a team game, you know overall, there was always going to be a certain cap in their ceiling, you know uh, if you will, without him and once they rediscovered the core values that kind of made them so special in the first place, that ceiling should suddenly rise. I, at least I, I feel that way. Um, that's my hopeful view of the situation i may i may be wrong <laughs> but for once i'm choosing to be optimistic when it comes to Barcelona which is something that i didn't have a chance to say that often in recent years um and i guess i' also say that you know specifically we saw a glimpse of what Barcelona may become if players show up and keep working hard they look like a unit everyone was doing their bit, and then some pulling their weight and contributing uh but you know but even more than that they've been, they've been super fluid they were dynamic and far more unpredictable with a front three specifically you know they were they've been interchanging roles constantly um and uh, apart from that late game blip which you mentioned and Barca were almost superb um but but Barca was going to do a Barca that's that's the thing when they could conceded the second goal I was like okay here we go uh they're going to bottle another one <laughs> but but luckily it, they scored another goal so it was it was all good in the end uh, it's important that we don't really base all of that of one game so let's just wait a bit longer before jumping to any conclusions but I for one am pretty optimistic going forward i think that this group of players they have to rediscover how to play football without Messi and sadly they will be forced to do so now because he left the way he did that was not in the plans that was not in the script so uh, but sometimes that's the best way to learn right it's, it's just you have to you have to take a plunge and, and try and do it uh, and I think that long term, I'm not sure if Kuman is the right man to do so. We'll, we'll see, time will, time will tell. But I think I think uh, that this is this is a good thing. And Barca should, if they continue improving, if they continue working hard, Barca should um, kind of raise their ceiling, kind of live up to the potential that the team has. Because looking at the team, at the squad, player for player, I don't see many La Liga teams matching them in quality. And, and maybe even beyond La Liga. Looking at Europe as well, I think that Barca have more than just a decent squad. I mean, look at that front three of uh, Griezmann, Depay. Well, it was Brathwaite uh, the other night, but he also did pretty well. Once Fatih comes back and you have a midfield three of Busquets, Pedri and De Jong, uh, Eric Garcia coming into the back line and you know, on Sanjer Pique, and Araujo is there as well, Ter on goal. That's a beautiful team in my opinion. And if you can... Just point them in the right direction, and once they get back into the group, there, there's bound to be a certain of blip at the beginning, you know, adjusting to the post-Messi era. But I think overall, I, I, fingers crossed, I think they're they're gonna they're gonna do well.
0: Well, I guess in Frankie De Jong and Pedri, two of the best young midfielders in in Europe too, you know. But I think that there is still quite a gap between the top three, perhaps you could say top four, in Spain and the rest. And I think that you know their true tests will come more in the Champions League than in in La Liga. Um, but who do you think could be the guys who stick? Um, in terms of leading Barcelona forward into this new era, I mean, you mentioned Memphis, who was who was very good in the debut. I thought he was. Uh, he carries himself with a real air of confidence that everybody really like, and I find really you know I think Barcelona need that now, given how kind of insecure they are in many ways. Um, obviously Griezmann will need to step up this season. Hopefully Anzu Fatih will return back as you mentioned from from his injury with the same degree of panache that he had last season. Um but who do you think is the new face? Who will who will stick out this kind of transitional period and possibly lead Barcelona for the next five, six, seven years?
1: Well it's difficult not to mention Griezmann in disrespect. I mean he now is a time for him to shine. They spent 120 million on him. And he's been he's been decent, it has to be said he hasn't been bad. But for for that much money and, and the pedigree and the reputation that he has or had at Atletico Madrid, he just has to do more, and I feel like he will do more now that Messi is gone. And it's not just that he's now the, the face of Barca; he is kind of the, the biggest superstar of the team. But he's also been, due to Messi's presence, he was always kind of mis, misused. You know, he was always um, not in his preferred position is occupying a different role than he he's used to. So I, I feel like if someone has to step up, it's Griezmann for sure. But I don't think that he will be the star to carry them because I, I feel like Memphis can now be the one because uh, if Messi was still in the team, I wouldn't go for Memphis because Memphis is also a very ball-dominant player. He needs the, the ball to his feet. He he needs the freedom in the final third. He's also not really a typical winger. He's more of a... He's more in the same mold as Messi. Let's, let's put it that way. And with both of them in the team, it, I don't think it would have worked out for Memphis that well. But now that Messi is gone, Memphis cannot be the, the main playmaker. He can be the hub. He can be the uh, the player that, that everything goes through him, right? So, and we've seen that against Sociedad as well. Everything went through him. He was the main crea- creative link. Uh, he was dropping deep when necessary. He was making those runs. He was he was kind of dictating the tempo. That, that was it was brilliant to see. And I feel like if someone is going to perform at such a high level consistently, I think it has to be him as well. And about Fatih, Fatih is, of course, a huge talent, but as we said with Kamavinga and Elash Mariba, let's just give Fatih some time. He's so young. He's, he's excellent. Of course he is, but to sustain such an injury, uh, you know, potentially a career-defining injury at such a young age, we shouldn't really expect him to return and, and be hitting like 20 goals per season immediately. Let's just give him some time to get back to the team. Whenever we talk about those young players, and, and Jonathan mentioned it with, with the mentality and kind of setting this burden, setting this expectation far too high for them, I always remember the case of Bojan Kerkic at Barcelona. He was the one who was dubbed to be the next Messi and the next big thing at Barcelona. It was years ago, but he was supposed to be the one, and it came to the point. I remember reading one of his interviews. He said that he was he was struggling with mental health. He was struggling before every game he he had trouble breathing because he knew that he had to come out there and perform he had to be the next star even though he was like 17 or 18 years old and eventually it got to him he got come to the point where we just he, he couldn't do it and he, he he you know crashed and burned and and he was labeled a flop and you've seen his career kind of stagnate he was he jumps from one club to the other and i'm afraid that if we can kind of keep pushing those youngsters uh to kind of exceed expectations and to and to uh, become superstars at such a young age, I, I feel like we might be pushing them in the wrong direction. So I, with Fatih, he is a superstar in making. I, I, I'm, I'm positive that he is. Uh, same with Pedri as well. But let's just let's just give them time to, to become such superstars. Let, let them
0: be kids for a while. That's that's kind of the moral of the story here. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's um, tall order trying to replace Lionel Messi, that's for sure. Um, I mean... What I think has thrown on the radar recently is just how good he still is. I mean, I think he's still the best player in the world by some distance. I mean, he didn't single-handedly win the Copa America for Argentina, but he was integral as they went on and um, lifted the first title since 1993, the first major title. And it's clearly a huge weight off his shoulders too, um, in terms of going and achieving that and kind of finally doing what he couldn't do for so many years, um, given we know how important it is for him to represent Argentina. Um, and I'm really intrigued to see how he does at PSG. I mean, obviously, there's the kind of ethical questions around the whole move and that kind of thing regarding PSG's, you know, funding and the sources of that funding. But from a footballing perspective, the idea of him linking up with Kylian Mbappe and Neymar and that front three, as well as the likes of you know Marco Verratti, Leandro Paredes, Genie Wijnaldum, you know, playing alongside Sergio Ramos is it's going to be incredible to see that this season. Um, John, what's your thoughts on you know how? PSG are shaping up, they won their first game against um, Strasbourg 4-2 with Messi, Neymar Di Maria and Ramos in the stands not fully fit after their summer exploits Ramos come back from an injury Um, like how do you feel about the whole PSG thing this season do you feel guilty about looking forward to watching them play? Do you not like them? Are you excited? Do you feel ambivalent to it all? How do you feel about it all?
2: Yeah, it's it's funny. I think out of the inverted commas, oil clubs, I think PSG are probably the one I like the most, uh, probably because I see them lesser, but also because um, they're they're kind of hardcore fans. They, they make a great atmosphere. I remember they were some of the best away fans that have come to Anfield in Europe, for example. So in that regard, I don't really have as much of a you know, as much of a tainted view of them than I do maybe the other oil clubs. But uh do am I excited about it? Yeah, definitely, because one way or another it's going to be absolutely fascinating because it's just a bunch of superstars in one team. That doesn't mean to say that I think it'll necessarily work and I think they'll win the European Cup. I don't think they're balanced enough to win the European Cup and I think I think they're going to be so dominant in their own league that they won't be sufficiently battle-hardened when they face the best teams in Europe, despite the fact it's a cup competition. You know, the draw could fall your way or whatever, but it it's 100% exciting. And the latest rumour is that apparently it's going to be on El Chingarito later, which is possibly the best show that I can't understand. But it's, uh, it's, it's always really dramatic and good to watch. Is that Ronaldo might go there, which will pave the way for... Um, for Mbappe to go to Real Madrid, so that's potentially something to keep an eye on. Maybe Juventus kind of want them off their wage bill because they certainly don't have the financial wiggle room because of that commitment to him that to strengthen their squad even further. So that that could be something possibly that comes to fruition. But uh, yeah, it, it's dead exciting. Like, how could you say it's not exciting? Uh, even outside of the forward players you've mentioned, they've signed the likes of Wijnaldum, who's an excellent player, uh, Ashraf Hakimi, who's probably one of the best wing backs in the world. So. It's an entirely exciting project, but um, whether it works long-term, I don't think so. I think it might be actually like the the Real Madrid Galacticos. They won't actually bear fruit in Europe. The original batch of Galacticos is not the class of Alonso and uh, and Ronaldo, etc. So it's going to be dead exciting to watch because there's going to be drama, there's going to be intrigue. And from a coaching perspective, it'll be interesting to see how pochettino really cajoles these players and handles these massive egos to me it seems like a job prime for zinedine zidane the master kind of manipulator of a big player's ego it seems prime for him to take it eventually especially given his record in the european cup and that's probably the, the trophy that they prize the most so uh yeah like for so many different perspectives and even for just maybe the surrealness of seeing messi in another jersey that isn't argentina are or Barcelona, or even Newell's old boys, as he does in celebration once, it'll be certainly something well worth keeping an eye on.
0: Absolutely. Jonathan, I know you're a seasoned observer of French football. Um, You're always quick to respond to any perceived slight against it. Um, And I know that you're a big fan of the cultural significance of the French game. Um, Is Messi's arrival... And, you know, the whole kind of galactical, or as you titled last weekend's, our last week's podcast, Galactique uh project. Is that good for French football as a whole, Um, do you think? Is it kind of like a, a rising tide, lifting all boats? And also how do you see from a footballing perspective, this experiment working out, especially if Cristiano was to come as, as John alluded to?
4: Yes, <clears throat> it's an interesting one. I, I was itching to be on your show last week when, uh, when it was announced. Because I had so many hot, had so many hot takes for days that I was desperate to give them to somebody. Um, yeah, I, I, I just I don't buy. Um, I don't really buy the the negativity. I think I think human being as human beings, like we have a tendency to lean towards the negative. It's how we as progressed as human beings. You know, we, we we don't look at positives. We we overfocus on negatives, and we we we, we tend to overlook positives most of the time. Um, just as a general point. And I think that's kind of where the PSG thing uh, is really that's my kind of feeling about the the whole Messi to PSG thing. I thought it was brilliant. I think it's like one of the best things I've seen in years. I loved it, to be honest. Um, And and I think a lot of the people who kind of say, oh, it's a disgrace, it's terrible. I mean, they racked up five million views on on Twitter in, in like 20 minutes. Um, they, they accumulated, I think 4 million followers in two days. So I I got a feeling some of these people have some guilty pleasures that they're not telling us about, you know, they're complaining on one hand, but I'm pretty sure they're watching the videos, the interviews, the tweets, the, 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 Instagram posts at the same time. Um, and I think, you know, that also, um, it also, like from, this is just my own personal opinion. I know a lot of people don't agree with me and they're, and they're probably going to call me an idiot and, and et cetera, et cetera, but that's, that's fine. That's my own opinion. Um. I also don't really get the the whole kind of outrage really personally, because I think if you, you could look at accumulation of wealth, um, in other spheres with other people, with other companies, and, and you can question them just as much as you can question, um, the accumulation of wealth of, 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 you know, others, um, to be honest, that's like a whole different conversation. We can have another time, but the point I'm trying to make is like, we, I think we sometimes over overemphasize the, the negatives of certain projects whilst completely overlooking the negatives of other projects that that could be equally, if not more dubious. So I try and leave that, that moralizing a little bit out of it if I can. I mean that I could be here for hours naming clubs and et cetera, et cetera. And, 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 you know, what kind of what about on that side of this thing. So I just tend to look at the the sports side of it, which may make me naive in, in some ways, but you know, like I say, the, the other side of it, you can have, you could be talking all day about it if you really wanted to have like a mature, honest conversation. So. Messi, I loved it. I thought it was brilliant. I thought it was fair punishment for Barcelona for years of embarrassing um, financial mismanagement. And I felt like it was time for them to be punished. Um, you know, if you look at the the years of Barcelona with so many, you know, Paulinho, Kevin Prince-Boateng, there's so many deals where you're just scratching your head. And I thought this was like the coming home to roost of it, really, the, the inability to register Messi. Um, I felt for Messi personally, obviously, because, because he wanted to stay. And he offered, I think, a 70% wage cut. But... Um, in terms of PSG and, and how it changes French football, I agree with John. Basically, they're going to they're going to they're going to destroy teams in Liga. Um, but will they be will they be, will they be getting ready for for Champions League? Because that's where that's where they're playing the money really. Um, I think there's going to be some squad issues if they don't reduce the squad as well. I mean, you look at Kayla Navas against Donnarumma. Navas was superb last season for PSG, and already that's I think there's going to be you know dressing room. Issues, there's so many egos, um, and I, I don't even think the whole like, argument that PSG will now dominate really holds true. I, I think that we will. I, I honestly think this is going to be the beginning of the end for Kylian Mbappé at PSG. I, I think that there's only so much room for so many egos, and I, I think that I, I don't. I don't look at it as kind of this terrible for football thing where they're going to dominate and win everything, and it's a it's a terrible thing for all of us. I, I, I just don't see it playing out that way. I think I think they We we know how Galactica projects end. They don't end. They don't necessarily always end in this in glee. Um, and I and I think this project will will have issues, um, and I think Mbappe is, could potentially be that the, the 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 one who has the biggest issue with this, and 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 eventually may seek his own path to to Real Madrid. So, yeah, I mean, what I would have liked to happen is 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 you know you just mentioned Ronaldo there. I, I would I would like Ronaldo to go to Marseille. If we're being honest, like if I was if I was writing a script of football, you know PSG need a proper challenger. And and there are billionaire owners at other clubs as well that that that, that didn't make this move for Messi. He, he was a free transfer, and and his wages are very high, but manageable if you look at it in the context of other other players and and transfer fees etc. And adding all everything together, so um, you know Donnarumma, I think fees alone, commission fees and things like that, were were, were close to Messi. So um, yeah, the, I, I think in terms of competitiveness of League One. It will s- struggle from the point of view of PSV will dominate, but that was going to happen anyway, because if you look at the Champions League, they've been, I mean, they just got spanked 4-0 by Nice. Uh, gautier has gone obviously to Nice, and and and, and 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 there's a new project there at Nice building that could be interesting maybe. Um, but there's so many financial issues in Liga, and that I, honestly, I think this is actually good for Liga, because it's going to draw so many fans to the league. It's going to draw so many people to the league. People are going to be tuning in to watch Messi, and that's going to increase the marketability of French football. So um, only from the competitive side will it be bad. But the only other thing I would say about it that will be a bit of a worry. Um, Ligue 1 is not a joke in terms of how they treat superstars. You know, look at Neymar. like He gets hacked to pieces in Ligue 1. And I, I actually have a, a feeling that if he was doing his career all over again, I would question if Ligue 1 was the best destination for him. Because I think he, he's been hacked so much in Ligue 1 that it's injuries have started to accumulate. And that's the only one thing I'd say about Messi. I hope I hope that's not the situation because in Liga, you do get just, you know, it's called a farmer's league, isn't it? And you do sometimes just get these agricultural tackles that come in and, and take players out. And 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 I hope that doesn't happen with Messi because it would be very, very sad if that was to happen. Um, that's my only little worry about it in terms of the, the deal and stuff. But uh, if you're asking me how I feel about it, I, I think it's great, to be honest. Um, and I feel for La Liga, but... I think they they've got their own issues to deal with now, and and you know there was a conversation earlier about how will they um, remarket their league and that kind of thing, and I think that is going to be a real real challenge for Liga, uh, La Liga this, this season to kind of get over Messi really, and and that will be a challenge for them. But for Liga and for French football, it's, it's 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 great for them.
0: Indeed, you mentioned Kylian Mbappe in his future there. Until recently, he was always mentioned in step with um, Erling Haaland, another young prodigy who's two years younger than um, Mbappe, actually. But it seems, Jasmine, it's, it's almost like it's gone a bit quiet around Haaland in the last few few months over the summer. There's not been much talk about him. It's mainly about, well, obviously Messi, but also Mbappe. It seems he's almost gone off the radar a bit in, in, for some reason, and maybe because he wasn't that Euro 2020, I don't know. But you know, Borussia Dortmund beat Eintracht Frankfurt five two at the weekend. To open their um their campaign. Uh, Halland was front and center. Um, do you think he's going to stay at Borussia Dortmund this season? It seems to me the most likely situation. And also, how how big a year is this for him? But also for Borussia Dortmund, do you think that? by their, you know, digging their heels in and keeping him this season and selling him potentially for less money next year than they would this year, are they really putting it all in for a kind of a title challenge this year, do you think?
3: I honestly think they are. I also honestly think that clubs believe now, uh, Dortmund have been pretty sharp of the hills, like saying, you know, this money is not enough. It, they would only entertain and outlandish offer we're talking upwards of 150 million um so I think unless someone was going to really produce that kind of money they didn't want any other players they just wanted into solid cash and who can blame them um so without clubs offering that cash and knowing they can get him next season if they want him for cheap um I think they are going more for the we're gonna keep him for silverware. Whether that will work. Um the super cups tomorrow. Um no one in Germany really, really rates that, but it's still classed as if I don't know if it is classed pre-season. Usually it's pre-season, but we've gotten midweek of the first week. So I'm not sure how they're classing it this season. Um but that's on tomorrow, and that would show a real Uh, it's like a showcase of skill between Bayern Munich and Dortmund and who has the upper hand and who will take this throughout for the rest of the season. And as Bayern Munich are the the title holders and the ones to always beat, that will give a good viewing of what we're going to expect across the season. Um, For Dortmund, it was same old, same old. Um, Even though they've got a new manager and don't have Jaden Sancho anymore. Um, they beat Frankfurt 5-2. And it was really strange because nearly every goal but one came from a counter-attack. So we're seeing more of that first season of Borussia Mönchengladbach, Marco Rosa, where, you know, you just dominate teams off the counter-attack. And if you've got someone like Erling Haaland, who just carves through defences with his monster run... And his skill, you know, we're going to see what happened in Eintracht Frankfurt and what we saw at terms of last season with Edin Terzic. Um, He scored two goals and had two assists. And Frankfurt just gave a really good viewing of how not to beat uh, Dortmund and how not to contain Holland. Um, I don't know what they tried to do. They kind of got stuck in a crossfire every time they lost the ball, their counter defense just fell to pieces, and they got punished severely. But what's interesting is that if you give them the ball, if you give Dortmund the ball, they still look kind of hopeless in possession. So, which that could be a kind of a weak point in their quest for competitive silverware this season.
0: It'll be certainly interesting to see how they do and see how Haaland continues. Will he be able to maintain this crazy scoring streak or not? Like you know, it's uh, It would certainly be impressive if he could at such a young age. But um, Just to finish up on the title race talk, because we're running out of time, um, in both England and Spain, uh, a couple of interesting games over the weekend, Jonathan, I'll go to you on this one first. Uh, Liverpool beat North City 3-0 away at Carrow Road, and uh, Man City lost 1-0 to Tottenham Hotspur in London. Um, Liverpool look strong, they're full of running, uh, kind of the polar opposite to last season you could say they looked f- full of energy, full of enthusiasm, a bit like and glad back. they looked like they were well rested and benefited genuinely from the uh, summer break and the kind of demarcation that brings with it. Uh, Man City, by comparison, didn't look great. I mean, again, we don't want to draw too many conclusions from one game, but it's now three games in a row. They've lost 1-0. They lost to Leicester City last weekend in the Community Shield. They lost to Tottenham Asper, of course. And they also lost to Chelsea in the Champions League final. Um, Is there a bit of, you know, strange feeling around Man City's camp, do you think, at the moment? Do you think that Liverpool, by comparison, are kind of relishing this kind of, not underdog, Status, but not favourites any longer, if that makes sense.
4: Yes, I, I do think Liverpool have gone slightly under the radar this, this summer um, and I think still think they have a strong squad and I still think they'll be title contenders. Uh, so, yeah, it's a, I can't really put my finger on why. I suppose maybe it's just because Chelsea been won the Champions League and, and City won the Premier League and, and kind of, you know, Liverpool didn't have the best of seasons. But I don't really see... I, I, I do think it probably benefits them to, to be slightly unheralded. You know, they've got players back now from injury. Van Dijk's back, came through the game. And, and um, yeah, I think they can be considered to the title, title contenders, definitely. Uh, with uh, Man City, I think it was, they always seem to start slowly, um, partly because they have so many players away on uh, various tournaments. So I think we can kind of, um, you, you know, you can, you can always expect them to be a little bit slow and they don't have a great record at Spurs. Uh, and obviously, the hurricane situation may be complicated things slightly. But I just felt like they 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 were they were they're not quite on it at this moment in time. And and um, you know they left certain players out like Stones and, and others who would would normally start if everybody was fit. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think I don't know if John's back now, but you uh, you may have some thoughts on Liverpool.
2: Yeah, I think the, the the thing with Liverpool is if you look at them from the back end of last season. In their last 10 games, they won eight and they drew two. So it was a massive, a massive, massive upswing in form. And I an attribute a lot of that to Fabinho returning to the defensive midfield slot. He's among the best players in the world in that position. And I'd also give a lot of credit to Thiago, you know, being in midfield and maybe acclimating a lot more to the rigors of English football than he may have done at the start. So if you add those two, uh, into the midfield, plus you have the return of the defenders of the calibre of, obviously, Virgil van Dijk, who played 90 against Norwich, maybe surprisingly so, and maybe bar one or two half-rusty moments, he looked very composed, and he looked back to, close to his imperious self, and also Joel Matip, who I think is m- among the more underrated defenders around Europe, so if you add all of those players back into their team, then you have a formidable starting eleven. Now, the issue with Liverpool maybe perhaps that they don't really have the depths that, say, a Manchester City would have. But they have between they have between maybe 13 to 14 to 15 outstanding players. So if they can keep them all reasonably fit for, for the duration of the season, I think they'll be there or thereabouts uh, in the title question. I also think it was very encouraging from a Liverpool perspective to see Naby Keita play so well. He's another player who can be outstanding on his day. It just so happens that, to not use a pun he's been hamstrung a lot by injuries and he's never really been capable of building on good performances with liverpool because invariably he'll break down through the injury so it was really good to see him play well and likewise costa simica uh, andrew robertson is obviously such a massive outlet for liverpool and a huge player for them and he'll miss about a month of action now but it's good to see that in his stead they have a capable player who while not always being the most tuned in defensively can add a lot going forward and bring a lot of pace to proceedings and you'd be confident that because he plays uh at left back next to left side of center half Virgil van Dijk that van Dijk will have enough uh kind of nows and be able to babysit in true games or maybe his def- lack of defensive acumen might kind of be be an issue so I think that Liverpool will be there or thereabouts but uh, a lot of these things could change between now and the end of the transfer window because I'm sure a lot of the rivals like Manchester City will keep adding so they might have to do their own business and As regards to Manchester City, I think that uh, Nuno Espirito Santo got it absolutely spot on tactically for Spurs. He used a similar template when he was Wolves manager against Man City, and it worked quite well. I thought that Spurs really sliced through them in transition on several occasions. It was as well as Lucas Moura has played since that Ajax semi-final in 2019. I thought he was superb. He he broke into space really often. He looked really nimble at the ball at his feet and. If it weren't for several kind of bad final balls or poor shots, I kind of my mind goes back to Sun Young Min having a few bad shots uh, or taking the wrong option. Steven Bergwijn missed a 1v1. I think Spurs could have won even more comfortably. And Manchester City looked quite ragged after the first 15 minutes. Uh, we spoke on last week's podcast about how we thought that maybe tactically that Jack Grealish would take a lot of adjusting to be able to play as a number eight in the Premier League because despite the fact that he has all the technical abilities, you know, it's physically taxing and it's tactically demanding. And I thought he was uh, he was a player that kind of maybe left Fernandinho and an aging Fernandinho at that a little bit exposed in the midfield. And I think Spurs had a lot of joy at running at Manchester City. So while I don't think it's terminal, it would be crazy to describe it as terminal, perhaps uh, Spurs provides a template to other teams and how to really counteract Man City. And I think that as well, another element to add to that was their fans really lifted them. And, you know, Manchester City succeeded last season playing in empty stadiums, but playing a brand of football that maybe was more suited to empty stadiums, very calculated, very precise, very kind of almost robotic. So it'll be interesting to see how really the fans affect them this season.
0: Absolutely. What was you reading this game, Jasmine? Um, the Spurs City game. I know we did a conversation yesterday about it, and you were kind of not as impressed by Spurs as many others were.
3: Um, I think in spirit and in structure, they were very good against Man City, but I don't think. I think it was more that people think Man City were absolutely terrible, but if you. Look at the numbers, it's, it's, it feels like we see this game every season between Tottenham and uh, Man City, especially at Tottenham. Um, there's been loads of past games where Tottenham have has won and Man City have created a lot more chances. All the way back until August um, 2019, when it was Man City at the Etihad versus Tottenham, it was 2-2. Um, Zinchenko got sent off, I believe, in that one. And Man City created around three goals on XG, and Tottenham had scored two goals from 0.07. It feels like Pep Guardiola never seems to learn from this particular game, um, where he doesn't really instruct his team to stop a counter attack. And it always seems to bite him in this particular game, mainly because Tottenham can work with their pace so well, um, even without Kane. But again, uh, Jonathan mentioned earlier, Man City didn't start Kevin De Bruyne, Foden, Rodri, Walker, Stones. And I think on another day, when you start that team, they would play better and and it's not all doom and gloom and if you just it's not going to be the same man city team that we've seen last season for quite a while until those figures kind of come back so um it's not much to read from this game i will not say it's it's history and repeating itself and in the same sort of circumstances
0: yeah i think you're spot on and um, it's guaranteed to be a very tight title race this season for sure it takes a brave man to call a definitive winner at this point of the season, I think, um, with so much um student flux. And it's quite similar in Spain, I guess, uh, Domagoy. I mean, aside from the the big two that we mentioned already and have been covered in, you know, quite forensic uh, detail over the course of a tumultuous summer for both clubs. Um there's two other teams in the title race, I think you can it's fair to say obviously holders of atletico madrid who won last season um by two points pipped madrid in the last day of the season um they went and beat Celta Vigo 2-1 at Balaidas in in galicia a hard fought victory they saw two red cards and um it, it was really textbook shoulder, you could say proper suffering and and, and fight to overcome and, and, and earn that victory and then down in andalusia in 35 degree heat sevilla went and beat rayo vallecano uh, 3-0 um, I mean, they were only two points behind Barcelona last season. And like I said, they were 15 points clear of Real Sociedad, who were in fifth place. So I think it's fair to say that they could be in with a chance this season, although it's definitely an outside chance. I mean, both Atletico and Sevilla, in many ways, are stronger this year than they were last year. I mean, for Sevilla, for instance, they haven't lost Jules Koundé yet, although that could change. But if that does happen, I would imagine that Manchi would have... Replacements lined up, and he'd spend that money in intelligent ways. They brought in Eric Lamela, who adds a different edge to the midfield. Papu Gomez has come in, and um, he came in midway through last season. Whereas this season, he's a full preseason uh, under his belt, and he'll be in better shape, you would imagine, heading into the new La Liga campaign, and so on and so forth. Um, Atletico similarly have had very good to Paul; haven't lost anybody. Look close to adding either Matthias Cunha um who I know Jasmine rates quite highly or perhaps Rafamir depending on how negotiations go. Um what were your thoughts on these two these two two games, um Dom? Um and how do you feel about Atletico and Sevilla's respective title chances of this season?
1: Uh, well at the moment I'm still backing at Atletico Madrid to reclaim the title. At the end of the season, but it's not exactly an open road. Some people are painting it to be um, the most obvious trap you can kind of fall into is discarding on you know, Madrid and Barcelona such situations. And what's even more, you can ask any Atletico Madrid fan, and they'll tell you they have this tendency to kind of implode whenever they're proclaimed favorites. Uh, and, and maybe it's that underdog mentality, kind of if, if you will, that still sometimes bogs them down in a way. You know, um, as things currently stand, I don't think anyone uh, outside of the usual three suspects, so like Madrid, Barcelona, Madrid, will challenge for the title. But I am expecting a lot from both Sevilla, as you mentioned, and VRL. Sevilla need to be, the same as VRL, they have to be aiming for at least top six, and Sevilla need to be in contention for the top four. Um, there's just no two ways about it. If there was ever a season, if there was a season in which we'd see the gap between the top and the bottom kind of shrink, it has to be this one where you have Barcelona's first season without Messi and Real Madrid's season without Ramos, Varane and Zidane. Um, and all three of the of the big teams, of the top teams, have some question marks hovering above their heads. With Atletico Madrid, for instance, it's actually, in my view, it's a two-fold problem. I simply don't know where the goals will come from for them because when you look at the team from last season, you can see that both Marcos Llorente, for example, and Luis Suárez had overperformed their expected goals by significant and i would even say largely uns- unstable amounts i'm fairly confident that they won't be able to replicate those numbers this season especially you are not and this means the likes of korea Lamar, Joao felix will have to step up immensely uh, of course they've added to the poll and that, and he is an elite progression and, and is highly creative as well but it's difficult to predict how that will translate into goals for athletic um, on the other hand their deep block defensively has been unconvincing, as I, would, I would say, which is kind of problematic since that used to be their bread and butter. You know? It's like what used to be famous and still are famous for the, for the defend, defending, but too often we see them yield possession and control over to the opposition after gaining an early lead, for example. This means they're largely reactive uh, as opposed to being proactive, which is not really a characteristic of a big and superior team nowadays. The solution would be kind of slowly to implement a higher press and a more more proactive mindset, which, to be absolutely fair to Simeone, he's been trying to do with varying levels of success lately, but it needs to to be much better than that. Barca have this obvious period of adjustment without Messi, while Real Madrid are going through the same thing, but on the opposite specter, you know, losing uh, Ramos in defence. With Real, as I've mentioned Earlier, they have become more of a defensive juggernaut after Cristiano Ronaldo's departure. So that makes the these departures even more significant for them. And in attack, they will they've been largely dependent on Karim Benzema. So if that fails, and the defense doesn't hold up, there could be trouble once again. And this is where I see teams like Sevilla, teams like Villarreal kind of stepping up and and you know kind of having to push the top teams, the usual suspects, to the limit. And maybe maybe you know, challenging for those top spots. I don't see, at the moment, I don't see anyone outside of the top three really taking the title, to be honest. I'm not confident enough in that. However, I do feel like the gap is kind of shrinking, especially with Messi gone and Real Madrid also losing players. I think the gap is shrinking to a certain extent, but not not enough for the likes of Villarreal or Sevilla to kind of snatch the title away. It would be good for the league overall. It would be good, I think. To kind of break break that, um, I, I want to say duopoly, but but oh, but it, it's 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 more of a just yeah Barça and Yeah, that that's, that's kind of the story of La Liga and Athletic Madrid here and there. So it would be good for the league overall. I just don't see it happening just yet.
0: I think you're spot on, uh, Damagoy. I think so, genuinely. Um, Yeah, I guess winning a title is one thing, retaining it is another thing altogether. So I think that if Cholo can do that, then it'll be possibly his greatest achievement and a career full of them. Uh, Just to finish off, guys, with your moment of the week, uh, the moment in the last seven days that's struck you the most, you could say. Um, For me, obviously, there was a couple of good moments. I mean, Sevilla having fans back in the stadium, singing that hymn a cappella before the game was phenomenal uh i do scoring a Baron storming winner um against our did tight pulling the game back on everyone's uh favor against uh southampton was something else and taking off a shirt and celebrating with a pitch invasion that was great but mine was trevor chalaba uh making his premier league debut for chelsea although obviously he played against um the Real in the European Super Cup he scored a superb goal their second goal and in celebration basically just dropped to the ground and you know put his head in his hands he, he couldn't believe what he'd done born in Freetown, Sierra alone it was quite a moment for him and I just thought it was one of the remarkable debut celebrations I've ever seen in my, in my football sporting life so that was my moment of the week um, what were your guys moments of the week? I'll start with you Jonathan and if you can mention your socials too so people can follow you um, after the episode is done Pogba's pass. That's all, two words, two words.
4: Yeah. <laughs> no, but Trevor Chalibre as well was was a, a, a beautiful moment. I know that, I think they've, um, I think they've, I think they've uh, gone through some personal issues in the past as well, their, their family. Uh, I, I, I'm not sure exactly. Um, I don't want to say too much about that anyway, but I think, I think it's, you know, I know he's been through a lot is what I'm trying to say. Um, and yeah, it was just a a beautiful, pure moment. So, yeah, I would I would say that as a nice second place, but Pog was fast. Fair play. And socials? Uh, at J-F-F-U-T-B-O-L. So come and abuse me about PSG and everything else and uh, tell me I'm an idiot. <laughs> I feel like I'm going to get in trouble in this episode. I feel, <laughs> I feel like I just got this dread. I've got this looming dread about this episode. So, yeah, you the can fear, find the fear. You got if you want to cancel me, bad. you can find me there. Uh,
0: Damagoy, how about you?
1: Uh, I'm gonna be super biased here, and I'm gonna say JRPK's opening goal against Russell That it just felt like poetic justice, you know. Just just before that game, we heard the news that PK agreed on a wage decrease that allowed uh, Memphis Depay and Eddie Garcia to be registered, and I felt like that was that was the move that kind of showed that he he loves the club, he wants to retire the club, he. And you know he just definitely quite literally put uh, his money where the mouth is. You know he just he just went for it and um, he showed his love for the club and, and I love absolutely love that. And then for him to go and score the first goal, uh, it was a beautiful header as well. Um, it was just it was just a nice moment, and I feel like he deserved that because in so many ways, yes, he's been declining. He's been. He's he's getting old. All of that stands, but I think that he's been so underrated in so many ways as well, both on and off the pitch. He was he's monumental for Barca. and I feel like he deserves more respect from just from Barca fans, but just in fans in general as well uh, across Europe. Uh, so a nice moment for him, a nice moment for Barca, and uh, as I've said, kind of poetic justice.
0: El Presidente, right? And he did a massive two-hour Twitch session afterwards too, which was <laughs> hilarious. I mean, watched that video,
1: Yes, so. yeah, exactly. He said that he will, he'll do it every single game, no matter if they won or lose, he's going to come live on Twitch and just chat with, with people.
0: <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, because Arnaud ternas turned up at the house as well, and so did Ricky Pooj. Oh, uh, yes. It was just funny. <laughs> you normally don't see footballers being so candid. It was, uh, it was brilliant. But what's your your social media, Dom, so people can follow you?
1: Uh, it's at dk dkostanjak. Oh, that that was a mouthful.
0: <laughs> it's <Yeah. laughs>
1: it's uh, Dikostanjak. Yeah, there, there we go. I'm not sure how to how to uh, do this so people can understand it easily, but <laughs> that's it.
0: That's the one. We'll be tagging you in all uh, promotional tweets, <laughs> I if, uh, appreciate that. Thanks. Having trouble with phonetic um Jasmine, how about you?
3: Um, it might have come a little bit after seven days, but um, Malmo managed to... <laughs> Yondal Thomason um, saying in the press conference that um, before the Champions League qualifier against Rangers, the second leg, which they Malmo were, themselves were leading 2-1, coming into the second leg, um, saying that Rangers needed to win because they're broke, basically. It's a fantastic press article. He does an, an amazing grin, a smug grin to finish it off. Um, please watch it. And then in the on Tuesday, the game, Rangers went 1-0 up in 18 minutes. It seemed almost gone from Malmo when Bonke Innocent got sent off in the first half as well. But Malmo turned it around 1-2-1, went through on an aggregate score of 4-2. And I can't think of how, how smug he was after that. Um, and my socials are on Twitter at bh one Perfect,
0: perfect. Rebound for you this year on Twitter, Jasmine. Um, and then finally, John?
2: Yeah, so I think really my moment of the week was the Watford, or It's not the Watford, sorry, the Brentford and the Norwich fans. They made an unbelievable racket. It made football feel real. Last season felt like a cosplay. It looked real, but it wasn't real. This was real football, real intensity, real passion, and it felt like real points were at stake. So I absolutely love seeing that, and I loved just having it back where I'd have three screens on, watching multiple games at once, checking my goal app. You know, weighing up permutations of what results, even though it was the open day, might mean for certain teams, managers, transfers, etc. Just immersing myself in football and brilliant to have it back. Absolutely well said. what's the Twitter? Oh yeah, sorry for your sins at Notorious JOS.
0: Fantastic, fantastic. But listen, thanks so much, guys. You can catch me at feely on Twitter. We had a couple of technical issues producing this episode, so it may be a bit askew, but um we'll be back next week. Uh stronger hopefully uh, until then have a good week enjoy the football and uh, talk soon